I'm Chris Reback. This is Call In. With Dr. Alexandria White, we discuss business leadership in our time of social change, when to call in, when to call out, and how to build sustainable business value today. Before our conversation, though, an ask from us to you. We hope you like these call-in conversations, and if so, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Our show is brought to you by Clayton Dubalier and Rice, which is committed to a more diverse and inclusive future. Let's call in. Professor Tomaskovich DV, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We have been looking forward to speaking with you. Maybe we could start at the highest level, and I would ask if you could provide some background on your research overall. It's unfair, of course, to ask (laughs) you to sum up your life's work in a matter of minutes, but you focus on the processes that generate workplace inequality. What are those processes? How long have they been in place? And why are they so hard to change? What a great question. So my background is I'm a social scientist. I direct the Center for Employment Equity at University of Massachusetts. And I have a long history of working with research questions around why are some workplaces more equal or less, where we see some kinds of advances around the DEI space. Increasingly, I'm really interested in what works. Where do we see the positive outcomes? I spend a lot of time thinking about what management can do, and I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that today. What are the positive? What are the outcomes of that? In the DEI space, there's often attempts to change people, change Mm -hmm. their attitudes or beliefs, or perhaps we believe that the people are good, but we have to make them aware of inequities or biases or the like. I actually don't think that's the way managers manage workplaces. Hmm. Managers don't say to workers, oh, please be in favor of productivity. Managers set goals, give people timetables, and then evaluate them for getting them done or not. In the DEI space, we see more paying attention to kind of the inputs on the level of culture and talk and less at the level of outputs and accountability. Mm -hmm. A manager who says, you know, everybody work harder, but doesn't set a timetable for the product to hit the market is not managing. Your bio indicates that your long-term agenda is to, and I'm quoting here from it, to work with others to move the social science of inequality to a more fully relational and organizational stance, which I think is a bit what you were just describing. As I was considering that and reading your work and thinking about some of the things that you've written and said, I kept thinking about obstacles to success. Is there something about organizations interests that puts its interests, their interests, in opposition to equality. How should equality get defined in the workplace? It's a really good question. I don't see any opposition in the DEI space. Mm -hmm. There's potentially opposition sometimes in the kind of the space of who gets what. That is like once you've created a certain amount of value, you've got some revenue at the end of the quarter or the year, how it's distributed. That's probably not strongly correlated with the DEI space. The question of who gets what, maybe in some sense, that's where I'm wondering about conflicts of interest or tension. If we think about organizations as relational spaces, that is people doing stuff with other people, some of those relationships are hierarchical and some of them are competitive. Some of them may not actually be competitive in practice, but feel that way. These things do become part of the diversity and inclusion space when people with advantages feel threatened. 
and then you get pushback. When I've talked to diversity and inclusion um, leaders and big firms, they talk about the problem of middle managers. Middle managers just don't want to deal with this. That's because middle managers have to deal with that sense of threat, competition, resentment, fear. But what I'm talking about management, I'm not actually talking about those middle managers. Middle managers' job is often to protect their work group from top managers. Top manager says, I want this product out on time, or I want to restructure. And middle managers say, no, yeah, it's fine. Do that, but not in my department. That is, their job is to protect the local. But top managers long since have figured this out, and they set, set goals. They said, this is what I expect out of you. And those are metric-based goals, not pie in the sky. Let's be nice with each other. And so two follow-ups that come to mind on that. One is on metrics. Is that the right way to consider, quote, success, whatever success gets defined as in DEI space within an organization? And then two, so I hear you, it's the role of senior management of a CEO, but also other C-suite leaders, boards, to define and drive goals, to set the broad course. And yes, there may be then pushback on whatever that goal is from middle managers, But at the same time, senior management can't be unresponsive to middle management. They can't just ignore it. So two questions for you, Professor. One is around measurements, metrics. Is that the right way to think about DEI? And two, what do you say to leaders, to C-suite leaders, about that tension behind potential goals versus what they might be hearing from within the organization? So on the issue of metrics, each firm needs really to look inside itself and say, okay, what are the metrics that matter for us? So you can have a firm that's doing a good job hiring and has a terrible climate. So it ends up with a lot Mm -hmm. of turnover. You could have a firm that has good kind of diversity, let's say in some set of target core jobs, but high wage gaps in between them because they've got some kind of informal pay raise system or even a formal pay raise system that has biases in it. So the idea of metrics is first, you have to figure out what's your problem. And it's going to be different in different firms. For some firms, it's going to be a problem of hiring and some of turnover, some of inequitable treatment, some of climate. You have to figure that out. Let's say you had a quality problem in a manufacturing firm and you knew it by the final product. But that doesn't tell you what created the quality problem. You have to go and go back through the engineering process and the production process and see where you made your mistakes. So this is not rocket science or unusual. This is what firms do all the time, production process, time to market, various kinds of costs. My argument is they have to be similarly analytic and similarly metric driven on the diversity and inclusion space. If they're not, it may just mean they don't value it. Taking all of that into account, metrics, hiring, accountability, I want to talk about the theory that might be behind that. So what is this relational inequality theory? How does that apply? That's a really a great question. It's a little bit of academic inside baseball. Yeah, yeah. The classic theory, academic theory, social science theories about inequality focus on the attributes of individuals. Okay. And if you're underpaid, it's because that's your problem. There's something wrong with you as a person. If you don't ask for for a raise, it's your fault. It's your fault. Um, Okay. If you get paid a lot of money, it must be because you're really good at your job. And we know that's um, not true. And so often not true. (laughs) So the explanation is in the individual. And my argument is that when we move into organizational spaces, the explanations are always in the relationships. It's the relationships between people. It's relationships Mm -hmm. between jobs, the relationships between departments and the like. I could talk about that for hours, but we probably don't want to go too far down that road. But I'll go down it a little bit more. The power for me of the relational inequality theory is it Mm -hmm. moves this away from individuals to thinking about organizations. 
And organizations are really powerful precisely because that's where all the resources are. That's where the jobs are. That's where the income is. That's where the value added is. That's where a lot of the dynamism, it's where most of us get our status, prestige, respect, dignity. And all of those things, whether it's getting hired or getting paid or being treated with dignity, are about the relationships in those organizations. Who's valued? Who's more powerful? Who's treated with respect? For me, if you're going to tackle inequality problems, you have to tackle the relationships that produce them. Mm -hmm. And that also means changing the relationships. Now I'm going to go back to Chris's second question about, okay, C-suite people may get some resistance. Um, the first, the C-suite people do a lot of symbolic work, both towards their workers and towards their environment. So simply saying that we support diversity and inclusion initiatives doesn't actually mean they do. That is that this support can be symbolic. Does symbolism matter? It can matter if you put it into practice and you actually hold people accountable. But let's take the diversity and inclusion space right now. And in, in my mind, it has kind of two central actors that have access to the C-suite. And that's the diversity and inclusion managers, some of whom are now at the C-suite level the last few years. And the other is the lawyers. And whenever these issues arise, let's say someone feels they're being treated poorly, perhaps the diversity and inclusion manager says, let's figure out why we've got all this turnover among Black women. The lawyers are going to say, we may discover something that could be held against us in court. Or there's a complaint and the lawyers are going to say, we have to isolate this person and get them out of here. A lot of the legal talk around diversity and inclusion empowers the lawyers and it disempowers the diversity and inclusion managers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that in a relational kind of way, it's okay. If you want the C-suite people to be more responsive, you have to empower the diversity and inclusion managers, not the lawyers, whose job reasonably is to defend the firm from threats. But if you define this as a threat, then the game's over. Do you have any examples of that? My strongest examples are negative, which is that the whole regulatory structure around the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance, they're very legally structured. In that sense, the basic way as a society we've decided to enforce equal opportunity empowers the lawyers. And that's a mistake. But it sounds like an opportunity, perhaps if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, an opportunity to transform symbolism into action for a C-suite executive would be to shift some of the power base from legal to HR, DEI, and amplify that side. Is that an accurate? Yeah, precisely. And I'll give two good examples of that. One is a historical example, and it comes from the researcher Frank Dobbin, who you should also interview on this podcast. And so Frank's got a book on the kind of the history of diversity and inclusion measures and how the personnel, which we now call human resource profession, changed over time. What Frank shows is that in the 60s, when we had this robust protests and civil rights action by African-Americans, and then following that uh, women's movement for women in general, that that empowered the personnel managers. It made them less bit players on the sideline and the people that the CEOs would go to for help. My research shows we see very rapid gains in firms during this period in terms of the hiring of black and white women and black men. Very rapid gains that happened during this period. A more recent one is the Black Lives Matter movement 
the 2020 reaction to the murder of George Floyd, which led to gigantic protests, the largest protests ever in the history of the United States across the most cities, most geographic reach. It also led to many, many of the top corporations making public commitments to racial justice. And these were commitments for many of these firms that had been pretty quiet before. And for some of them, these were quite dramatic big dollar value donations either to civil rights organizations or commitments to change their supply chain and the like. One's a historical example and one's a contemporary example where the politics and the society empowered the diversity and inclusion people. And I have talked to diversity inclusion executives since the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests, and they agreed that their position in the firm was strengthened. What role can slash should performance reviews play? Is that a type of tactic where if a C-suite executive wants to really drive action, is this the type of thing that you see or that you advise companies to tie compensation to? Is this a hiring, retention, engagement question? What are some kind of tactical, practical steps that leaders can take? So first, I see the doing the work of figuring out what the right metrics are, then following them over time is the primary tactic. It gives the person at the top an independent metric to say, yes, things are getting better or worse. It allows them to compare managers. So for example, if you say, okay, we're going to give raises to all the managers who increase the diversity of their um, work group, and they do it Mm -hmm. by hiring people from some other work group in the same firm, you've just reshuffled the checkerboard and probably made one department worse while you've made another one better. One of the things that metrics do is allow you to kind of compare. It also helps you figure out the excuses. So I'd I'd like to talk about the tech sector for a moment. We did some research early a few years ago, looking at the largest firms in Silicon Valley. And so, okay, lots of money, lots of growth, kind of the jewel in the crown of the United States economy at the time. And also it had a big diversity problem. And was painted as like a sector that just couldn't do it. Well, in that case, every manager can say, sorry, we have a diversity problem. We all do. Those people don't exist. We can't hire them. We'd hire them if they existed. So that research, what we found was, oh, that's not really true. That some firms really were doing quite well and some were doing horribly. And so that's a comparison across firms. I think that we as a society could do better. More recently, I've done some work on the tech sector, which is okay. If we look at firms and say, okay, are they any of them getting better or are any of them getting worse? In about 10% of firms, there was a rapid increase of diversity in their technical workers and their managerial workers, and even in the executive level. But the executive level is the easiest place to increase diversity. Often, all you have to do is add one job. Mm-hmm. It's harder to do it for middle managers or for the core technical workforce. So there were like 10% of firms that were getting better. And they tended to be firms that were more kind of dynamic, showed stronger growth trajectories. They also tended to be firms that had diversified their middle management. And then that had trickle down effects on the people they hired, which was the kind of core technical professional workforce. And then there's another group of firms almost as large that were just getting worse over time. But the average, something like 80% of the firms saw hardly any change. My set of feeling is, okay, that probably means that either that top 10% were actively managing it, diversity, and doing it successfully, or they just got lucky. But I doubt it was that they just got lucky. And that's certainly not how we normally evaluate success. 
So is that a next step of research to determine, okay, if it was not just luck, literally, what were they doing? I think that is the place to go. I mentioned Frank Dobbin before. He and another sociologist, Alexandra Kalov, have this new book, Getting to Diversity, What Works? And it's a pretty good book comparing across firms. So it doesn't get you straight to that recipe. One of the things that they show is that the more that there are some kind of accountability metrics, the more progress you get. And diversity training doesn't have much of an effect. And actually, if you do diversity training and you mention the law, it usually makes things worse because it creates that threat for middle managers. So I think that, yes, I think that's a place to go. But I also think it's not just research that social scientists should be doing. It should be part of that kind of internal apparatus inside the firms. And big firms are going to have an operation research department worrying about quality control. Their DEI people should be able to do the same. Thank you so much for that, Don. But I want to pivot before we close out. We know that companies, large companies, are laying off people right now. Mm-hmm. We have to get your insight into that. So there's this expression, how you lay off is who you lay off. Right. What does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means that the layoff process could pay no attention at all to what's the diversity implications of it, or it could be focusing on that. Mm-hmm. And that, okay, if you're going to have to lay off, let's say you're a firm that's made a big commitment in the last few years to diversity, and you've hired people you may not have hired five years ago. Right. And then you lay off the most recently hired people. You just undone those goals you that you set for yourself. One of the things I'm looking forward to, a lot of the big tech firms in particular, because this is where the layoffs are happening, it's it's not elsewhere. Mm -hmm. A lot of the big tech firms for the last few years have been releasing their reports to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the composition of their labor force by race, gender, and occupation. Interesting to see after these big layoffs like Microsoft and Google, what those numbers look like next year. Mm -hmm. We should be able actually to see from those reports, assuming they continue to release them because the releases are voluntary, if when you chop off 5% of your workforce, who it was. On this point, are there specific tactics, notes that you give leaders as they do have to consider layoffs, things that they should be doing, keep in mind to make sure that they don't throw out diversity babies with the (laughs) uh, reduction in force bathwater? I don't know if I got that metaphor. Yeah, um, you know, I wish I was that influential. So nobody comes to me and asks other than you. I just did. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. I feel like uh, my status has been elevated. You know, I think it gets back to that uh, empowering the diversity and inclusion function within the firm. If you're going to make these layoff decisions, who's going to be at the table? You need stakeholders who are going to advocate for diversity and inclusion for DNI efforts to be successful. And that also means when you're going to do something else that has major implications, whether it's changing the way you evaluate workers or pay practices or layoffs, those same stakeholders need to be empowered. Thank you. John, this is about our time with, um, this is the ending of our time together. Is there anything else that we left out that you might want to add for our listeners? Anybody who wants to see the kind of work we're doing, you can go to the Center for Employment Equity at the University of Massachusetts. We have lots of data up there for you to look at, as well as a series of reports that might be useful. Some of them are about these topics. We've also talked about discrimination around sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination and quite a lot more. We will put that in the show notes as well. Professor Tomaskovich, DV, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, sharing this space with us. And that is all for us today. My pleasure. Thank you all.